Hello everyone and welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz Formatic. All-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the Formatic range for yourself, visit your local Mercedes-Benz retailer. I'm Ed Foster, I'm the online editor of Motorsport Magazine, and we have a real treat for you today. On my right is Mike Costin, and to his right is Jack Field, both formerly of Cosworth. I'm also joined by Simon Aaron, our features editor. Thank you very much for joining us. And of course, Alan Hyde, who is the man behind the camera um, and makes us all sound, well, a lot better than we do in real life. Um, we've got questions from the readers, and we've also got questions from former Cosworth employees. So we'll get to those in a bit, but first of all, a little bit of background on both Jack and Mike. Jack arrived at Cosworth in 1961, having got to know Mike and Keith at Lotus, where he arrived in 1955. Got to Cosworth and was the store's manager, selling the parts while Bill Brown sold the engines. Once Bill Brown left, he became the marketing manager on racing products. Mike left school at the age of 15 and took up a five-year trade apprenticeship at the Haviland Aircraft Company. Met Colin Chapman at a 750 Motor Club meeting and soon started working for him after his falling out with the Allen brothers. Built up Lotus Mark VI kits during the night and then worked at de Havilland's during the day, getting only, I think, Mike, about four hours sleep in that period. <laughs> um, an astonishing, astonishing feat. Um, soon, Keith Duckworth arrived in 1957 and got to know Mike. And from there, the famous Cosworth was created. Um, in 1958, on September the 30th, I think. Um, in the following years, Cosworth developed race engines for the Lotus Cortina, Formula 3 units, Formula 2 units, and then, of course, the famous Cosworth DFE, which would become the most successful racing engine in the history of the sport. 27 years after it was created, the Cosworth DFE, in the shape of the ZTEC RV8, won the Drivers' Formula 1 World Championship in 1994 with Michael Schumacher. What an incredible history, and we will be delving into it now. Jack and Mike, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real treat to have you here. Um, I think it's quite nice to sort of rewind and go back to um, the Lotus days. How, how did you first, I'll come to you first, Mike. Um, how did you first meet Colin and um, how did it all start? Uh, well, I'd, I hadn't had anything to do with any form of motor racing. I'd been to the odd motor, motor race as a spectator. Um, and... Uh, but a friend, friend of mine, another apprentice, the Hovland apprentice, uh, Peter Ross, he suggested to Colin that I would be a likely lad to um, give him a hand because he's got a lot of work on and uh, on Mark VI cars and the Allen, he'd split from the Allen brothers. So um, I did a deal with Colin, basically, that uh, we'd work uh, in our spare time to find, to, to build kits for the Mark VI. And... Uh, when we got to number nine, that would be our works car. And uh, we would uh, run that in racing in, in, that was 1953, and we would share the driving. And that was the big carrot because uh, I really fancied doing a bit of racing, although I'd got no idea what it was all about. Uh, the first race, Colin briefed me to, uh, if, I, if I could get behind Phil DeSouter, who was the hot shoe at the time, in 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 that uh, f form of racing and uh, he said follow him and you'll learn a lot and uh, so i did that and uh, that mind you that was the last time i followed him i uh, ended up in front after that but uh, yeah so that was that was how how i started with colin and then keith came along uh as a, a student from in his uh, vacation period from imperial college and started working for us, and uh, in those days, of course, I was his boss, um, and uh, we we struck up a friendship, and I had the greatest respect for his the way he approached his engineering, and uh, that really blossomed because when he came and uh, worked for us full time as the development engineer on the on the five-speed uh, gearbox, the queer box that was, 
um, we were in consultation with each other as to what the mods would be that he would be putting in. And um, he did a fantastic job, really. But Colin didn't appreciate it. Uh, whereas I thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. He really was. Even though he was, you know, uh, a young, uh, you know, a young student, like ex-student. Uh, in fact, uh, somebody put a notice on his on his desk saying, "Who needs experience? I'm I'm a I'm a college student." <laughs> uh, Jack, oh, you you were at Lotus from 1955 to 61 when you went to to Cosworth. What was Colin Chapman like to work for? Is was he quite a hard taskmaster? Uh, no, never, never really bothered me, except that he didn't pay me a lot of money. That's one of the reasons I could afford to start, because I was still living with my parents, and he treated that quite early on. But um, I used to be a part salesman at the Vauxhall dealer across the road, and on his way into work, if there was anything strange he wanted, uh, he used to ask me if I could find something that could be modified to suit. And while he was away at work, I used to go through the General Motors Bible, and if I could find anything that I thought would do it, it had all the measurements there, then uh, I used to get it for him when he, on his way home. And after about a year or so of dealing with him on various things, um, he asked me if I wanted to become a millionaire. So I said, <laughs> yeah, I'd like that very much. He said, well, one day we will be one of the big six. And he said, you will grow with the company and you will finish up very rich man. So I joined him, I think, for two quid a week, you know, so... So what have you done with your millions? And I, was still, I was still getting that after three and a half years, two quid a week. I, I think, Mike, at that time, I think he was on three quid a week, so 50% more than that. So uh, that was it. Yeah, And uh, there's, I've got a question here from um, a former Cosworth employee. I don't know who, because they were sort of all sent to me as a batch. Um, could you please explain the terminology jack tax? Yeah, well, I was doing the costing at Cosworth and so I'd go through the cost of the raw material, how long it was on each different machine and the, each machine has a price. And uh, I work it out very carefully and then add 25%. And they called it jack tax. But I did it just to cover any errors I'd made on the calculations, I thought, you know, so I used to give it 25%. But then when Alf Vickers joined the company, he moved it up to 30%. I said, why, you know, why 30% Alf? He said, well, how about your wages? And how about storekeepers? And how about the people? He said, it covers all that. And the van driver, so his was 30%. So prices went up dramatically when Alf joined the company, yeah. Um, just sort of keeping on, on the sort of the, the Lotus period, um, you know, at the time, obviously, Graham Hill was works driver and then also, you know, um, Jim Clark was winning everything with the Lotus 18. What, what were they like, um, you know, to, to, to work with? And were they quite friendly to, to the guys around, um, around the office, as it were? Uh, well, Graham... Well, you've got to bear in mind, uh, the story about how Graham met uh, Colin and myself is perfectly true. Brands Hatch, we had, you know, we were busy with several cars that we were interested in, and uh, there was this chap talking to us all day. He was either talking to me, or he was talking to Colin, or if I dashed off and did something, when I came back, he'd be talking to Colin, and the other way around. And at the end of the day, we gave him a lift back to London in the transporter, which was an old Bedford bus, and... Um, Brought in some fish and chips, dropped him off at a tube station, and uh, Colin said, "Who's that? That mate of yours?" And I said, "No, no mate. I thought he was a mate of yours." <laughs> and that was it. That was Graham. 
come Monday, he was at the works wanting a job. And, and Colin gave him a job, gave him a job in the gearbox shop. No, not that uh, he did much work on, on gearboxes. He was very lucky because um, the, uh, the gearbox shop was the only place that had a telephone. And he spent most of his day on the telephone chatting up people to give him a drive. Uh, you know, anybody like John Coombs or Dan Margulies, people like that, who uh, actually let him drive their cars. Um, yeah, so Graham was Graham. You couldn't say he was anybody else. Uh, Colin, yeah, I got on all right with Colin. I only had ever had a couple of uh, get stuff matches with him. But uh, apart from that, um, well, apart from that, I worked for him. That was, you know... Colin, uh, Colin was never a friend of mine. I don't think he had many friends, really. You know, Jim Clark being the main one. Um, and so he had employees. Uh, Coswell's was different because uh, with Keith, we had a social side as well. I mean, were there ever any days, though, when you'd see... I mean, he had a reputation for being mercurial. Were there any days when he came into the office and you could see the face like thunder and you all kind of kept your heads down and... And, and kept out of his way, or or was he general? Was gen was generally was his was his humour generally okay? Uh, you mean Colin? Yeah, Colin. Yeah. Um, well, Colin never really mixed with people apart from going over jobless, uh, and so uh, he spent most of his time, I think, planning ahead. Uh, so he didn't spend so much time. Uh, Having having given me the instructions as to what was done, I'm talking about the early days, uh, which was largely from a job list that he would uh, write. Um, and apart from that, he didn't see much of him. In fact, sometimes I didn't see him for two or three days before a race meeting. But he was uh, one of the advantages he had with me was that he knew I'd be there at the right time with as much of the work done as possible and arrived just in time for scrutineering. Now, Cosworth was started in 1958, but you actually stayed at Lotus until 62 because you had another three years of your contract left. So actually, Jack, you, were, you started at Cosworth in a way before Mike. You know, yeah, <laughs> we always knew that Mike was going to come, so yeah. What, what were those early days like? Because it, it must have been a slight step into the unknown. Cause I, I know well, the early days... You First ones in used to, in the winter you used to have to light the, all the oil heaters and uh, I think Mike's first office there was up in the roof, wasn't it, Mike? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Keith and I were both up in the roof. I seem to remember reading somewhere that you um, you said you were lucky to be alive with all of Keith's smoke from <laughs> from his cigarettes. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, it was a blank end. Our office uh, we had a vertical ladder up the wall. Uh, which was made from packing case parts, screwed to the wall. And uh, the two of us in this office, it was blank off to his end, so all his smoke had to come past me to get out into the rest of the roof. And below was the welding spot, where all the welding and brazing was done. So uh, it wasn't a very healthy atmosphere, with Keith on his 60 a day. <laughs> and was it? Did what did the sort of your Lotus colleagues at the time both think of you know, you going off and setting up this engineering firm, did they think, think you were mad going off on your own and doing your own thing, or were they quite supportive of it? Um, no, they did think it was it was weird, because, uh, you know, a couple of them said, well, how, you know, here you are, you're director of all the companies, you're, you've got your name above the door in the office, secretary, and now you're going down to that little tin pot place down the road at Edmonton. So um, I said, yes, but uh, I reckon I'm doing the right thing. Turned out all right, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what did you have any particular, when we all know what happened eventually, but did you have any particular sort of objectives or targets in the, yourself and Keith in the, first, in the first place? Did you have any broad vision of what you wanted to do? Uh, no. We just thought that a couple of likely lads like us in engineering ought to be, make our way in motor racing. That was base, the basis of it. Uh, we didn't know that we were going to end up in engines. In fact, we started out in our spare time, what spare time we had, um, uh, helping people with their Lotus cars. And um, so uh, 
it wasn't until Keith really decided and said, look, we've got to do something about this situation. He said, it's, it's got to be a full-time job. And um, he'd got some family money to survive on. He wasn't married, and I'd got a wife and three kids to support. So that was uh, when we decided that I'd better sign on the dotted line for another three years. And he um, carried on on his own. It was fortunate that um, at that time, of course, the, um, he had a hard time for the first year or so, but the, then the Ford 105E came on the scene, or didn't come on the scene. Keith, because of his uh, contacts at Ford, uh, f from his university, people who'd gone to work at Ford, uh, had a few Ford 105E bits to look at, blocks and cranks and things, um, because they were smuggled out in people's boots from Dunton Research. And, uh, and it was decided that that was the engine to go for, because uh, uh, he was going to... Uh, Modify the Fiat 1100. For Formula Junior. For Formula Junior. Um, and uh, it's fortunate, really, when we made the Lotus 18, that uh, I could convince Colin that we should use the Cosworth engine because um, although we ran one against the other with the, the Sprinzel, you know, John Sprinzel, what do you call his company? Speed Speedwell. Speedwell, yeah. Well, Graham was a director of that, and so he was rooting for Speedwell, and I was rooting for Cosworth. Um, but I could say that, uh, look, the BMCA series is at the, the end of its development period. It can't get much better anyway. And here's this 105E Ford with over-square over square, uh, bore and stroke ratio that um, you know is at the start of its career, and uh, it should be a better bet. And so, fortunately, Colin went along with that, which was fortunate for Cosworth because... We decided to make um, 25 chassis at the beginning of the, the year for the Lotus 18. And that meant uh, that Keith was going to do 25 engines, plus a few that he did for other people as well. And uh, by the end of that year, we had made five batches of 25. So that was 125 engines by the end of the year. And uh, the price of that, the deal was that... Um, Lotus bought batches of 10 engines and shipped them down to, uh, to, to Cosworth. And um, uh, Cosworth did strip them and rebuilt them, modified the parts and tested it. And, uh, and, and that was for £145 each. And that was really the thing that kicked off the quantity production at, uh, at Cosworth. I, I was doing a little bit of research earlier and I... Uh, I mean, everybody knows that DFE stands for double four valve. I didn't realize I didn't realize what MAE stood for until I did a bit of. I discovered modified Anglia engine, which is yeah. so si just <laughs> so simple. <laughs> I, I, love, I, I love the simplicity. Quite right, yeah. uh, Jack. What what made you go from from Lotus to to Cosworth in '61? Um, obviously, you got to know Mike and Keith at, at Lotus. W was it well, was it a belief in their engineering and, and the yeah. company or? I met my future wife at uh, Lotus and uh, by 1958 we were engaged and I thought, Cross needs to look at how I'm going to buy a house, certainly couldn't do it on what Colin was paying. So uh, I went back to the Vauxhall Bedford dealer and they offered me a van on the road, freelance. As long as I didn't call on any existing customers, I'd get 1% commission. So, £11 a week, up from about three quid a week from Colin, and 1%. But I had to do over £1,000 a month for it to be viable. And uh, so, very quickly, I latched into the M1 where they were building, and 90-odd percent of the trucks were Bedford. So I lucked in there. First of all, getting the difficult parts, what was keeping vehicles off the road, by chasing round all the London, 
Bedford did until I found something, get it back quick. And then eventually I got all their orders. All I had to do was just ring them up. I got all their orders for all the easy stuff as well as the hard stuff. And um, so I was averaging about 4,000 a month with this grey van, really just working for myself. So getting about 40, 40 pounds a month commission, it nearly doubled my salary. But I could see an end coming through it. I thought, well, when the M1's built, my turnover's going to go over the cliff. And then I had the phone call from Keith, come and see him. So I thought, well, I'm on, I'm on a thousand a year. If he can carry on paying me a thousand a year and it's not, commission's always a bit dodgy. Uh, after Lotus, I wasn't sure that this company, Cosworth, was going to look after me much better than Lotus did. But anyway, he paid me, uh, I think, not uh, 950 pounds a year for the, for the first three months and then a thousand a year. So that's how I joined. It was enough to pay me mortgage, which was 16 pounds a month at that time. I wish my mortgage was that. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, it was only, the house was only 2,700 brand new, so... I wish my house was that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's probably worth half a million now. Yeah. So, there you go. Um, obviously, you know, Cosworth, well, Cosworth did so many things, um, but really the thing that it's, you know, it's most famous for, um, quite rightly, is, is the DFV. Where where did the idea originally come from for that engine? Was it was it? Can you remember from the sort of the mists of time how the, how it first raised its head, or was that lost to the to the books of history? Well, um, before then, we had gone into four valve engines after the um, SCA, the single single cam, and we'd gone on to the FVA, the four valve engine. And that was very successful. And then, of course, the uh, Climax uh, said, right, they're out of racing. And Colin was uh, going to be out of, out of Formula One if he didn't do something. And uh, it was... Uh, so he, he uh, started looking around to see who was going to finance it to pay us to develop the engine. And um, it went through SO. SO didn't... Uh, didn't catch on or any other fuel company and uh, uh, David Brown um, they were interested but they wanted to be in complete charge of the thing which and Keith said well stuff that and um, and then it came to uh, um, Ford and uh, of course Walter Hayes he uh, took it on board because he knew Colin and um, uh, he knew Colin from right back from when Colin, well, I, th I think Walter ghosted a bit for Colin on the Daily Mail or some paper. Um, and he came up with the goods, he came up with uh, 75,000 for the DFE and 25,000 for uh, a research engine, which was what we called the FVB, which was a, a 1500 version of the FVA. And... Um, uh, that was the one we put in our racing car, and I used to race. Um, uh, and then the deal was done. They wanted uh, Ford wanted uh, an, ag an agreement which was going to go to several volumes, and eventually, finally, it got down, and uh, they said, "Right, well, you better write the agreement to Keith," and he wrote the agreement in three pages, and that was it. They accepted it. So, uh, and that stood stood us well for the next few years. Um, and then we got down to the layout for the engine and it all went on from there. Now, obviously you, you alluded to it earlier, but actually you did quite a lot of testing. Um, and I th you were the first person to test the DFE, weren't you? At Snetterton. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Um, and you did something like 175 down the Norwich Strait? 
Yeah, so, yeah I think that was when we worked out the gear ratios and the rolling radiuses and things. And yeah, uh, yeah which uh, was quite frightening afterwards <laughs> because um, <laughs> when you think in those days, uh, uh, you know, the braking was uh, marking plus or minus a bit on the garage that was about 250 yards before the hairpin. And the hairpin was sort of six feet, six feet wall right around the hairpin of railway sleepers. And it wasn't a place to have your brakes fail. Well, if you did, you'd uh, be on the A11, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <More or less. laughs> right, well, right. Yeah, yeah. Only a hundred yeah. yards of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, did, did you know when you tested, I mean, obviously it was a very early example of the DFE and there was a lot of development to come, but did you know then that you did, hang on, we've we built something pretty special here? Well, it was all rated, it was based on the power, really. The target figure was 400 horsepower. And all the engines were, the, the first seven engines for, uh, built in 1967, all were between 403 and 408 horsepower. On our dyno, we never thought we could test a lot more, better than plus or minus 1%, but uh, uh, that was... Um, a very short, small range for performance for those engines. Um, those were the, the seven engines that we built for the 67 season. Mind you, there was an awful lot of work that had to go in during the season to keep them running. The, um, now, I did I, am I right? Did I read somewhere that actually Jack Brabham helped solve it, one of the problems on the DFE? Is that right? Uh, and well I seem to remember cause <laughs> and, and you saying that well we never wanted to tell him because he might might have asked for money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that was rather interesting because when we when we uh, de developed the um, the stroke of the uh, distributor, the fuel distributor on the uh, fuel injection unit on the dyno, and we plotted what was required for each stage. Um, and then we thought, right now, for, for running into corners and loading up with, with fuel or, or, or running into corners with zero, almost zero uh, fuel going in, we need a bit of an enrichment in a little area about sort of quarter, wherever you blip to. So we decided where, where, when you heel and toe going into the corner, where you, how much slot you gave it with your heel. And estimated that spot and richened it up quite a bit so that uh, you would go in and the engine would go weaker and you'd blip it with a bit of richness and um, that didn't particularly work because uh, well it just didn't work but when every engine came back for its overhaul the cam that did this would be put in a jig and we would check and make sure nobody had been messing about with it and uh, one day we, we checked one of Brabham's engines and lo and behold, it followed exactly our curve from the original plots off the dyno. And what he'd done, he'd cut out that richness bit and it was a straight curve as required on the dyno. And uh, so we thought, well, hmm, yeah, that most likely is a, a benefit, but as you say, we didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, before we go anywhere, I must tell you about the latest Mercedes promotion. This one's a really good one, and it celebrates Mercedes being world champions yet again in Formula One. You get 20% off all their official merchandise at their online shop, which is shop.mercedes-benz.com. All you need to do is enter the code 2016-champions when you get to check out. The code... At is only valid until the end of the month, so be quick and have a look in the next few days. And they're only valid for orders within the UK. Um, right, so back to the DFE. Uh, obviously, it's, it's I'm, I try, I'm sure there are other examples, but the fact that it went out and, it's, and it won its first race, um, was that uh, was there a small sigh of relief? I mean, I know there, there was a retirement, um, Graham Hill retired, but... Was it a small sense of relief that it went out and it was so successful straight away? Because really you don't know until you actually race the thing whether it's going to work 100%, do you? That's right. Uh, no idea, really. Um, uh, and it was very fortunate that, they, that one of them finished because uh, subsequently uh, we found a lot of problems in two areas. Well, 
we'd already found a lot of problems because um, on the design of the DFV, there were uh, things which uh, were wrong. The first thing was the breathing, crankcase breathing, which was very bad. We knew that on the dynamometer before we ever went into the car. And those engines in 1967 um, had some fairly dreadful uh, tubing to um, try and get over the uh, oil breathing problem. And um, so that was an, a problem that stuck with us for quite a several, well, up and, well, up until Keith redesigned the scavenge system uh, to... Um, take out a lot more than we uh, we were using about six gallons uh, per minute of oil going around the engine and and uh, in those days the recommendation was that you design for twice that volume uh, to take account of uh, gas coming out getting past the rings and so we doubled that and said right oh, 12 gallons a minute so the weight of it uh, but uh, Keith designed the redesigned the whole of the scavenge system and included uh, centrifuges to take the air out of the oil. Um, we pumped um, up to 55 gallons a, a minute, uh, and that cured uh, all our breathing problems. The other problem, of course, was the uh, the problem with the gears. Uh, we had all sorts of problems in the timing gears. And uh, that was a very, very difficult problem. Uh, we hadn't got the benefit that you have now of being able to measure everything. And it wasn't until until we actually checked up where this fantastic load that was breaking everything in sight came from. Uh, and then Keith went off and designed the, uh, what we call the quill hub. And uh, that cured, that was the last of the real problems. Um, I suppose neither of those problems could necessarily have been seen by a designer. So um, I still think Keith did a very good job. And when when Keith f finally retired from Cosworth, didn't wasn't he presented with this multi quill timing gear or all polished up? And it, I think with the words with these quills, you wrote a new book in the history of motor racing. That's um, right. Yeah. yeah, I should think that every Formula One engine now still has to have some form of quill hub to make the drives to the camshaft survive. What, what are your most vivid memories of Zandvoort 67? Uh, well, I wasn't there. <laughs> in, fact, <laughs> in fact, I didn't go to any races that year. Uh, Keith uh, went to every race. The only one he didn't go to was Mexico. And uh, he said, you'll have to go to Mexico. So I said, well, why? He said, he said well, I'm not going there because it, my gut won't, won't, won't cope with the Mexican food, so that was the only Grand Prix I went to. Co cope with 60 cigarettes a day, but not the Mexican food. <laughs> no, that's right. But I mean, obviously, you weren't actually at the circuit, but I mean, what are, your, what are your memories of the sort of immediate aftermath of, you know, getting the phone call with one and all that sort of stuff? Uh, I just wondered what you recollect from the, so the immediate well, aftermath of that weekend. Well, I'm not the sort of bloke that, that jumps up and down. I've never had a, what's called a, an adrenaline rush, you know. In all my, you know, driving racing cars, I've never experienced any form of adrenaline rush. I, I just enjoy driving. In fact, really, you know, when I started with Colin, the big part of our deal was that we'd share the driving, and that was the real thing that uh, got me to agree to it. Uh, so... No, I, I'm not a bloke who gets excited about anything much. Um, Jack, this obviously the Cosworth DFE, I think um, Colin wanted an exclusive license to use it for Lotus. Um, Keith and, um, and Mike quite rightly said no. And very quickly, it became the engine to have. You must have been, because it was your job to, to sell them, wasn't it? So you must have been uh, quite a job on your hands in terms of the sheer number that were yeah, staying out the door. The first inquiry we got was from uh, Ken Turrell, of course. It's been well recorded. But then um, I think we was helped greatly by March as well. I mean, they produced a Formula One car, which anybody could buy. And you could call it what you like. And um, go motor racing if you had your Hewland box and your Cosmos engine. 
and um, the decision was to make so many, say 12, and then sell them. So we just make what we can sell. And next year, I say, right, we're making 20. By which time everybody was clamouring to get them. And uh, you say, we ration them fairly. So we used to look and see what engines were in each, with each team and see if they were struggling because of not having enough engines and we used to decide who used to get the 20. Can, can I ask you what a Cosworth DFV would have cost me if I was a team owner back in the late 60s? It early was 70s? Uh, what it would cost. Yeah, yeah to, to, to buy an I, engine. I can't remember the cost. We <laughs> used to sell for <laughs> 7500 and which I always thought, even in those days, was too cheap. I'd, I would. I'm trying to think of what you could get done for seven and a half thousand on a Cosworth D van nowadays. I'd. I. I didn't. Not nothing. I don't think half a Pirelli <laughs> left rear or something. Yes, probably, exactly, I'm not. I'm not exactly. entirely. Inter- 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 was it seven and a half thousand? Did that include the um, the Alf tax or the Jack tax? Or was yeah, <laughs> that included all that. All that was in part. Yeah. But you had to make sure that the engine components came to more than the seven and a half grain. Otherwise, you'd get engine builders knocking them out. So that was about it. But the uh, I think one of the best deals that's ever done on the DFE price was Alf, Alf called me in one day and he said, who's buying all these engines? I said, Alf, you know. There's Tyrrell, there's McLaren, there's Brabham. He said, I, he said, who's paying for them? So I said, well, they are. So he said, well, where are they getting the money? I said, off sponsors, are they? So he said, yeah. Where's the money coming from? I said, well, mainly Switzerland, see? And we had one one customer, Count Zonon, used to buy them and give them away. He said, put some blue ribbon on it and send that one to Ken or whatever, you know. I think he used to do it just to get, so he had was well received in the paddock, you see. But anyway, I've got it, so he said, well, so the money's coming from Switzerland. So I said, yeah. He said, well, how, how much is the DFV in Swiss francs? So I said, 90,000 Swiss francs. That was 12 to the pound at the time. So he said, right, Keith won't move on the price of seven and a half grand, but I might be able to talk him into selling it Swiss francs. He said, because... Pound is going to fall in value against the Swiss francs. So what all we do every year is convert the ninety thousand Swiss francs back to pounds. I said he won't go for that. He said, "Well, I think no, he would." So anyway, a couple of days later, he come back. He said, "That's what we do. Price of the engine is ninety thousand Swiss francs." He said. What do they think of that price? I said, they think it's bloody expensive. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we converted, and I think the first year, I think it it went from seven and a half thousand to about twelve and a half thousand. <laughs> so it covered me jack tax and everything, you know. So, uh, and that's when it started to climb. Um, just, I must take some readers' questions here. Um, there's, I, I've got in my notes actually to obviously talk about the Cosworth four-wheel drive car. Um, there's actually a question here from Gabor uh, from Hungary, um, and he wants to know how how Cosworth came up with the idea of building its own F1 car, and why did you choose four-wheel drive rather than rear-wheel drive? Well, four-wheel drive was the the thing to be talked about at that time, and um, Keith. Uh, you know, we we were a very profitable company, and Keith was always up for for another challenge. And um, 
he thought, well, it'd be a good idea to make a Formula One car. And so, um, one way or another, he got hold of Robin Hurd, who at that time was uh, slightly involved already in in creating March, and uh, he employed him to come and design the car. And so that's, he was given free hand to design the car. When he uh, designed, when he got to designing the hubs and drives to the hubs, um, uh, and Keith saw what he was doing, Colin Keith was so upset, he said, right, forget that, I'll design those bits. And he designed the, the wheels and the hubs and the attachment system and... Uh, and he also said, right, well, ZF can do the, the front and rear diffs, non-slip diffs, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll design the, uh, the, the central 45-55 uh, torque split for the four-wheel drive, um, which was a, a really well-designed bit of kit and never gave any trouble uh, at all. Well, the, the small bit of running we did anyway. Um, I don't think he would have given trouble. Funnily enough, the um, the, 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 the uh, hub attachment and the wheel happened to be very similar to what March came out with when they designed the car. And, <laughs> and well, so Robin Hurd having moved there, of course. If you, wanted, <laughs> if, you, if you wanted to wind up, Keith, you could say, oh, Robin's done a bloody good job designing those March wheels. <laughs> 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 really wound him up. So, anyway, um, but it, no, the, the, uh, it wouldn't have gone anywhere, I don't think, because um, the first thing was that we were going to want some special uh, tyres and Dunlop wouldn't um, think about going into it. Everybody else made four-wheel drive, uh, you know, Lotus, say. But all their answers to the problems were... Um, the, real, the real problem was the feedback through the steering uh, was so bad that, well, I certainly couldn't do more than five laps and I was knackered, my arms were knackered because of the, the forces. It was uh, even worse driving than I mean, Porsche that I once drove, that was the most difficult car I ever drove. Anyway, um, it, we wouldn't, if we'd have carried on, we got such a big job list of things to do and we were so busy with all other projects that uh, Keith said, that's enough, right, told Bill, flog it. So Bill sold it to um, the museum with, for 4,000 quid without an engine or without an engine and gearbox. And that was the end of it. But I, I think to do it, you would have had to have quite a large team of people to look after the engineering. And in any case, Robin Hurd had pushed off because March started properly. And that was the end of it. There's a, there's a question here from Nick Mitchell who... I uh, wanted to know about the experience of driving the Cosworth four-wheel drive car, which you, you've, you've just mentioned. But he, want, he was wondering, does, it, does your experience relate to John Miles's um, of the Lotus 63 where he said that uh, it was difficult to load up and then it let go in a very unpredictable manner on corner exit, altering the trajectory of the car? Uh, well, you've got to bear in mind that I wasn't liable to um, push it too far anyway at that stage. I was quite staggered that Colin, uh, that Colin agreed with Keith that uh, that I should do the first bit of testing. Uh, of course, they s- the car was so badly set up that it was undrivable in a straight line, uh, whereas you needed about a quarter of an inch towing on the back axle, on the back wheels. It, it had been set up by the Lotus people with two and a half inches tow out. So it was undrivable in a straight line. And they were taking the mickey out of me, saying, oh, well, you can't drive because you haven't driven anything with this much power. So I told them where to go. Anyway, the, 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 clutch, um, the clutch packed up, as I, told, I told AP, you know, the Manu Lockheed, the AP, the, the, their twin plate um, that they designed for the DFE was a stupid thing. So um, I went and saw Bob dance. We took it back in the workshop, had a look at the... Uh, the the clutch and the, 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 the friction discs had fallen apart as I told they would, I told the, the AP they would, and we s- I went and saw Bob Dance who was running the, um, the 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 Cortinas at the time and said hey have you got one of our Cosworth twin plate frictions and so he said yeah okay so we stuck that in 
And that became the standard for the next few years. Anyway, and I said, hey, now half man, let's have a look see where the wheels are pointed. So we put some drummers along and found out this toe out was ridiculous. So we um, put that straight and then the next day we took it to Snetterton where um, it handled very nicely and the engine performed pretty well. And uh, as you say, it, it, it uh, after about 10 or 15 laps or whatever it was, I was really, really motoring and enjoying it. And the engine was behaving extremely well. Um, yeah, that about covers it, I suppose. Um, I obviously want to go on to sort of the uh, further things in, in the Cosworth history. Um, I was just going to take a couple of questions from the former colleagues at, at Cosworth. Um, I, I quite like this one. What, what was your most rewarding time at Cosworth? Was it sort of the, the development of the DFV, or was it something entirely different that perhaps Cosworth wasn't so famous for? No, I think um, life at Cosworth was enjoyable, whatever we were doing. Um, we were a fantastic company, really, insofar as um, everybody knew everybody else, uh, certainly until we employed a few hundred people. In fact, I dare say even to this day, I, I, I bet I know more people on the shop floor who haven't retired yet uh, than, than, than are known by the board of directors put together. Um, because, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time on the shop floor discussing with things being made and things being overhauled and things being tested. Um, and the whole lot was equally enjoyable. I can't really point any any um, sort of particular period. Now, I, d I have a vested interest in this next bit because um, my mum's actually got a, an Escort Cosworth um, RS that she goes to Tesco in. Um, and to do her shopping. Um, funnily enough, she actually asked for the spoiler to be put back on. Um, I won't say what her age is, but uh, she, the spoiler is now back on the back. <laughs> um, so the Sierra Cosworth project, that it was something that actually fundamentally changed the company because it, it was so busy that you had to split the roads and racing divisions. Um, one thing I really wanted to know about, the what were the tests you had to go through for this engine? Because they were some of them were unbelievable tests that were kind of imposed by Ford that you had to put put this engine through, weren't they? Well, they were standard tests. Um, I didn't realise they were standard. I thought. Oh they yes, they did. I mean, Ford have a sort of three-inch thick file of all the tests, and uh, you just have to go through it. That's it. And not only that, having passed all these tests, uh, and you, then you get engineering sign-off, and then it goes to production, and then the production director, having been caught out times before, with the engineering signing off and him going into production and then having problems, he says, okay, I've got a lot of people now, they're going to test the engine, they're going to do all the same tests as you've done. And they're not even engineers. And they bet the engine's got to pass. But, uh, you know, tests like 180-hour tests, you, you start the engine, it's got to be what they call an off-tools, you know, a development, uh, a pre-production engine. And... Uh, you allow 15 seconds after it started for the oil pressure to come up, and then it goes flat strap, max RPM, full throttle for 180 hours. And you're, all you're allowed to do is change the oil every 25 hours. And at the end of that, everything has to be within limits. Or you, when you strip it, uh, pistons, valves, valve seats, uh, everything's got to be within limits. Uh, 300, 300 hour test, which is. Uh, half of a 600-hour test, uh, where you're, you're on a 12-and-a-half-hour cycle from uh, max, max speed, uh, max torque, tick over, max speed, max torque, and backwards and forwards for 12 hours, and then you repeat that 12 hours, that, that cycle for 300 hours, then you strip the engine, everything's got to be still within limits, and then you, you're allowed... Uh, to replace gaskets only and rebuild it and do the same test again, another 300 hours. So uh, then scuffing tests, you piston scuffing, you have 4,000 litres of, of freezing water in a tank and, and you um, 
uh, fill the engine with this and you start it and you run at maximum speed, f flat out, uh, max uh, speed, uh, and, the, and the temperatures, the water temperature has to go up at least one degree a second to 120 degrees. And then you stop the engine back to tick over, switch, switch all the, uh, uh, the, 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 the water cocks, and the freezing water comes down and fills the engine with freezing water again, and then straight back up to, and you have to do that 10 times, uh, and then strip the engine down, and there must be any sign of any piston or ring scuffing. Uh, that's a difficult thing to do. Blimey, I'd, I'd, my dad always taught me to never rev a cold engine, but it turns out that, that you can, actually. Oh, so I <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, Jack, yeah. I want to, I'd obviously asked Mike earlier, um, what was your most rewarding time at Cosworth? When, when did, you know, which kind of period do you look back on most fondly? Uh, when I was moved over away from DFV, it, just looking after the four-cylinder, uh, Cosworth components, and um, with the help of Alistair Lowell, who I wasn't supposed to use on the design side, Keith said, right, you go over there with Frank Webb, Bill Pratt. You can't use any anybody from the design office. You can't test any engines. If you can't get the stuff made in the machine shop, you get it made elsewhere. And uh, he said, just go from there. So at that time, it was turning over about half a million. So, but to me, going to somewhere like Atlanta, where they have the runoffs, all the amateur races, the best go there and they run off. Uh, first time there, I sold 47, took orders for 47 engines. Because you've got the uh, Atlantic engine, and you've got the two litre engine. And then Alistair Lowe, I said, can you do a 1300? So he did a 1300 BDH, got it tested down at Swindon. And that went in a sports car. And then the other one was the 1100, the BDJ. And Alistair said, well, it's not going to be much good, but 1100. I said, will it do better than the Mark 11 or the SCA? So he said, yeah. I said, right, we'll go for it then. So here we were. We've got the 1100, got the 1300, the 1600 Atlantic, the 2 litre. And it was all coming out of Cosworth's door. So, you know, the turnover just went through the roof. Uh, yeah. It, it was uh, incredible, the, obviously, the rate of the growth of the company. Um, it, what, you know, looking back now, um, what, were you, you know, what were your thoughts you know, when it got so, so big? Was it still as much fun then, Mike, when Cosworth was this sort of huge, huge company? Or did, was it the early days, you know, when it was, it was just a, a handful of people? Um, you know, coming up with engineering solutions? Uh, well, yes, it, it did get uh, more tedious uh, uh, because we, you know, we got bigger staff and uh, uh, more things away from engineering, a lot of meetings and things like that. I'm, I'm with you on that one. I hate, <laughs> hate meetings, hate meetings. And, uh, and, uh, and then eventually it did get... Um, very difficult, you know, uh, but um, things happened. And finally, uh, Keith uh, decided one day he was going to disappear. And uh, and by then, of course, we were a large company and and a few people, uh, we had a managing director in those days who did a fantastic job, really, for the company while he was there. We were owned by Vickers. And... Uh, uh, and they talked me into staying on another year. I wanted to retire at 60, but they talked me into staying until I was 61. And um, uh, 
and, and, and being called chairman. I wasn't chairman really, but uh, they, they decided it'd be better if I was called chairman. Uh, and and then I retired at 61, and I've been lucky to stay now to my ripe old age now uh, for the last 26 years enjoying life. But uh, certainly up in the last few years weren't nearly as good as the, the early years. What would you think today? I mean, I've, I've been to Cosmos a few times in recent years. I mean, can you, do you recognise, it is, I mean, it, it, it occupies, for those who don't know, a huge part of an industrial estate in, in North, Northampton, um, both sides of the road, and there are more and more units going up, it seems, you know, everywhere you look, there are Cosworth buildings. I mean, do you identify that as being the same company that you were involved with all those years ago? Um, not really, but on the other hand, it's, it's about the same size now. Uh, no, it's not. It's about maybe 20% larger than when I retired. But the, the Cosworth Racing, of course, is uh, a very small part of it. And, uh, and the rest is now um, Marla. Um, you know, it's now called Marla Powertrain UK. Um, uh, yes, but it's still the same area, the same, same size but bigger. Of course, the racing side, I think they've got this deal with Honda, so they build yet another factory down farther down the road. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, and they've still, got, they've still got Keith's original drawing board there, which is quite nice. Oh, have they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I think is nice. Yeah, I mean, I there is a, there's, yeah. a, there's an array of... There's an array of bygone engines and Keith's... Well, the, what, oh, the yes. Draw, the drawing yeah. board that, on which he drew the d sketch yeah. of DFV that was is still there. Actually, I mean, there is still clearly a great pride in the company's heritage. Racing yes, heritage. I'm, glad, I'm glad they kept that because um, it does show right back to the start. That was largely the part of a chap called John, John Given that I took on uh, in, the, in, in the days when I used to um, run all the testing myself. And I took on John Given to straight from his apprenticeship uh, to run the test department, and eventually he became uh, our works and bricks man. Uh, a lot of people at Cosworth ended up not doing the job they started with, and he was one. Um, in fact, most of our factories, the uh, he was the responsible for dealing with the architect and the builders. Right the way through, when we built factories uh, you know, down the road and Wellingborough and, uh, and all over the place. So, um, yeah. I've got a question here from Robert Moy, um, which I, I quite like, and I'd, I'm interested to know the answer. When was the last time you wielded a spanner, and what was it for? I wield, wield spanners every day now. Uh, well, what, what do you what do you mostly work on? <laughs> Yesterday was central heating. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go from the Cosworth DFV to central heating. <laughs> um, I'm going to jump in um, with a couple of other questions. We'll we'll jump around a bit, but um, this is again from some some uh, Cosworth employees. Um, would you prefer to be a highly competitive and accomplished racing driver or highly respected engineer? Uh, I suppose I'm, I was never a highly respected racing driver. I used to enjoy racing, but I would never have been a Verstappen. Uh, I, so, because I was quite capable of driving, getting around a circuit very quickly. But I was always pretty careful otherwise. Um, Keith reckon, you know, I always used to say, well, I, I only drive at 90%. He said, yeah, I know. He said, you drive at 90% until some bugger's in front of you. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> but uh, now I suppose I'm, I'm better known as an engineer, although um, uh, really, again, uh, really I was assistant engineer. You know, I'm an assistant engineer to a lot of really good engineers, Primarily Keith, but we had a lot of really good engineers, and although I was their boss, I was still involved in what they were doing. Of course, this became uh, when we split the company uh, in about 1985. When Keith took on the 
the uh, Colesworth uh, Sierra program, he didn't know what he was signing up to. And um, uh, it wasn't until we were in dead trouble getting the first engines built and tested that uh, he called me in one day, when we had offices next to each other, he said, right, he said, we've, got a we've just got a split road engine. We used to call it road engines you know, working for Mercedes and Opel and Vauxhall and Chevrolet and that sort of thing. You've got to bear in mind, up until 85, we'd done more General Motors projects than Ford. Um, so he said, that's right, we've got to split it down the middle. He said, I'll be chief engineer racing, you be chief engineer road engines. And he said, you'll have to go and find somewhere to do it as well. And again, that's where John Given came in. I said to John Given, John, you've got to find some premises. And so uh, virtually the next week, we, I set off. He, John found a place just across the road where he took over half somebody else's uh, a garden, a garden machine supplier, uh, took over half his premises. And I moved over there with Mike Hall, the chief designer, and uh, uh, a few other lads. Uh, John Given, a, a quality manager, and a couple of engine builders, and and it, it all developed from there. Now we are running out of time, sadly, but I, I think I've got time for one more one more question, um, and and one from Simon if if he wants to jump in. Um, what what's your fondest memory of Keith when you sort of look back uh, on your time together? What what's your sort of your most fond moment? Um. Well, again, you know, um, Keith wasn't a very excitable person, nor was I, but um, we got on very well together socially, and we had a good few laughs, and uh, I think that's about the weight of it, really. We had a long, good relationship with plenty of laughs, as well as work. I'd just like to ask both of you um, what you think. I mean, you both came, you both lived at the hub of a, an era when Formula One was relatively accessible, despite your ninety thousand Swiss franc en engines. Um, the what do you what do you think when you see the sport today? I and mean, it's it is so much less accessible in many ways. Um, I mean, what I mean, do you still what do you still watch it? And if so, what do, what do, what do you think of Formula One in the modern era? Well, I I, I always watch the Formula One races, uh, um, and. Uh, I must admit, it's, I don't find it so interesting, simply because uh, now it's a, almost a foregone conclusion. And uh, do, you f do you find the engineering interesting in the hybrid era? Um, well, that's just too complex. I couldn't understand any of it. I wouldn't even try. <laughs> but uh, I, I do have a grandson who works uh, for Mercedes, aerodynamicist, and uh, I, I enjoy talking to him and trying to get something out of him, but he's, he's very tight-lipped about it all. Jack, what do you think of the modern era Formula One? Well, I don't think I would like to have been there now. I prefer it when, you know, you, there was the kit cars running, and I thought that was much better. I, I remember in the, in, in the early days at uh, Lotus, when when they went off to Spa or somewhere, load the car up in the back of the comma, the comma truck or bus, wasn't it? <laughs> and of course, the battery was always flat. So the factory used to turn out, push the comma back onto Tottenham Lane and down the hill to get it started. Halfway down the hill, it would start, and there they're off to Spa or somewhere, and always, always wondered how they managed to get there in that. <laughs> but you reckon that was quite a new bus? <laughs> well, yeah, that was a, that was a, Colin designed the bodywork. He scrounged the comma chassis, designed his bodywork to carry two Mark Nines. They were. Yeah. He never did carry two. You just about squeeze one in, and the other one had to go on the trailer behind. Well, that's Colin's packaging, isn't it? Sort of yeah. tight and compact. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> well, that was Colin's Colin's design. You know, people say to me, "You know, how do you rate Colin against against Keith as you know pure engineers?" Uh, and I'm afraid I say, "Well, 
Yeah, two entirely different people, but if it comes down to engineering, pure engineering, I think Colin's not even knee high to Keith. That's, mind you, that's just the way I see it. <laughs> Lotus people won't have it any other way. <laughs> well, what an incredible amount of success um, you know, Cosworth has had and, and still has to this day. Um, Mike, thank you so much for coming and joining us. And Jack, thank you so much. Uh, for for coming in as well, Simon. Thank you very much, sure. Alan, for making us all sound okay. I, I hope um, we're actually going to be back uh, at the end of this month for for another motorsport podcast in association with Mercedes Benz, and we're off to visit Lord March at Goodwood to chat to him. So that will be another uh, fantastic hour of listening. Hopefully, um, we'll see you all then in a few weeks' time. Thank you very much for listening and watching. Bye bye. Some things are made to cope with puddles and rain. Others deal with the stickiest of mud. And as for the snow, that takes a warm coat and sure footing. But when it comes to dealing with all conditions, there's only one thing that springs to mind. Mercedes-Benz Formatic, all-wheel drive performance in any condition. So whatever the weather or road throws at you, you're ready. To see the Formatic range for yourself, Visit your local Mercedes-Benz retailer.